have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. TheBrock.com, live from the Killarney's Public Health Studios. Welcome to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of health and healthcare. I'm in the studio today with our producer, Antonia Conti, and our guest, Dr. Ann Skalka, who is a virologist, molecular biologist, and geneticist. She is currently a professor emeritus and senior advisor to the president at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, and she is the co-author of a major textbook on virology called The Principles of Virology. Welcome, Dr. Skalka. Glad to be here. We are also joined, <laughs> listening in, Dr. Jonathan Yavalo, a professor of biology here at Ryder, who we're going, to, we're going to see if we can engage you in the conversation, Dr. Yavalo, as well. And so we're happy to have you both. Yeah, thank um, you. Dr. Scott, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yes. Uh, well, I have got my uh, bachelor's degree at uh, a small college, Adelphi College at the time, uh, in Garden City. And at the time, it was, uh, had been a girls' school for many years, and then was changed into uh, co-ed uh, at the end of the Korean War to let in some uh, men who wanted to study by the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. um, then I, got, I went to Yale, and uh, there I was uh, uh, one of the first women at Yale, because at the time, Yale was an all-boys school, and they only allowed women into the graduate school. And I was in the graduate school, but my mentor uh, went uh, to California, and so I transferred to NYU. And I finally got my uh, PhD degree from NYU Medical School in New York City. Very cool. And so in addition to the science that we we're going to talk about here, is, I think it's fair to say you are a pioneering woman in science. Ah, uh, yes. That's, and th and that, <laughs> I think that will be of interest, too, and that's something we can certainly touch on. Um, and uh, uh, you are sort of a famous person. You do have your own Wikipedia page. Oh, yes, point, point that that out. Um, So you can, why don't we use your words? Why don't you tell us what you're known for? Uh, let's see. I am known for um, my studies in retrovirology. Okay. Uh, but also uh, my early studies in bacteriophage genetics. So my okay, so what are those two things and how are they connected? Well, uh, bacteriophage genetics um, was very, very important uh, in the late 1950s to 1960s. Uh, bacteria are small and very easy to study, and virologists were then convinced that studying viruses of these tiny little organisms mm -hmm. would be the best way to understand the basis of heredity. And so there was, at Cold Spring Harbor, where I did my, my postdoctoral mm -hmm. work, there was something called a phage group, and they were very famous at the time okay. for um, un, un, 
I'm winding the whole, all of the, the, the studies of heredity, what genes were, mm. a recombination. So other than a science, science fiction movie where you see like these phages, which yes. are always these evil things, yes. like what, what is a phage? Well, a phage? In, in the sense that you're talking about it. It's a virus. Mm -hmm. It's a virus that affects, infects bacteria. And it can do that in a sense by exchanging genetic material. Correct. The, it, it, the, the, the genetic material from the virus mm. gets injected. Some of the viruses look very much like a syringe. Mm. So they bind to the outside of the virus. They shove their DNA into the virus, into the, into the bacteria. And um, then that DNA uh, uh, starts to change the metabolism in the bacterial cell so that more viruses are produced until hundreds are produced and the bacteria finally bursts open and releases all these new virus particles. That's sort of cool. And that was the first part of your career. <laughs> that was the first part of my okay, career. But, and then you go from the phage to this idea of retroviruses. Correct. And how are they connected and how are they different? Well, I was studying at the time a phage that was quite extraordinary. It had uh, two kinds of lifestyles. It could either do, do what I just told you about. It could uh, adhere to the bacteria and make lots of phages in a new burst. And that sense spreads that material, material from the virus to, to where, other, wherever other, the bacteria is. Okay. Right, other. But mm -hmm. the, other, the other lifestyle it had was that it could integrate its DNA into that of the bacteria. And it could then live there like a gene of the bacteria. And it could just be happy there until some sort of signal told it, hmm, now is a good time to make more virus. And it would come out of the bacterial genome and re restate the, um, the infectious cycle, so the burst of new viruses. Okay. So it had two lifestyles, and I thought that was fascinating. And how, how a, a genetic material coming from the outside could go in and then be just like another gene, it seemed... Extraordinary. It seemed it might have. So it was like foreign genetic material getting into an organism, right. staying there, and not necessarily right. killing the organism. Exactly right. Okay. Now, so then uh, it was discovered that uh, retroviruses really do the same thing. Mm -hmm. It was really very interesting. And so, so not to use complicated words, but what are some things that are retroviruses that somebody listening to the program might uh, be able to identify with? So retroviruses are really unique in that they, um, their genome is made up of something called RNA, whereas the, the, the genome of every living thing is DNA. But they have this extraordinary ability to take that RNA and to make DNA out of it, and then uh, that DNA, that new DNA, is inserted into the genome of the cells that they infect. And so they become part of the genome of that new cell. Now, this is not a bacterial cell. This is an animal cell. So this could be a cell of you, of me, of people, or Absolutely. a dog or a cat. And it right is, <laughs> and we have them. <laughs> so there it sits, and for most, in most cases, uh, the cell survives. It, it doesn't mind, uh, but it does make more virus particles mm -hmm. slowly, and they're put off into the medium so they can infect other cells. Mm -hmm. And it's forever changed genetically. Mm -hmm. And depending on where that DNA from the retrovirus lands, it can have a lot of different um, implications. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so you've had a lot of success in studying these things for I have, a, no yeah. a number of years. Right. Um, and so what aspect of this sort of um, 
your your expertise in swapping genetic material. I, I, I'll put it right out there. Why have you won all these accolades over all these years? <laughs> you don't have to be modest. Well, uh, well, um, I was very interested in this whole phenomenon and got into it uh, at the beginning when people just began to understand about this integration thing. And um, so the studies that we did at that time, which was in the 1980s and so forth, um, really um, described exactly how this integration of retrovirus occurs mm. and found out that it was extraordinarily similar to many transposable elements like phages and mm -hmm. transpose in bacteria. So there's this wonderful evolutionary connection. Mm -hmm. And you were at the forefront of the molecular biology tools that allowed Correct. people to look at these things. Correct. Yes, yes, I was, because uh, the molecular biology tools at the time used phages to clone genes. Okay. And so I was very good at that because I knew all about phages, okay. and especially the ones that, um, that uh, did the integration. And so, yeah, I was, I was able to, to get a leg up on those studies. Very nice. And have you always worked in an academic kind of place, or have you also worked in industry or private institutes? Yeah, so uh, when um, I finished my postdoctoral stint at the Cold Spring Harbor, I was asked to join a very unique uh, new institute called the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology. And that was a basic research institute that was funded by Hoffman LaRoche. We were here in New Jersey? It was here in Nutley, New Jersey. Nutley, okay. And uh, it was built because the president at the time was an MD. They had lots of money from Valium sales. And they, <laughs> were, they, they were convinced that molecular biology was going to give them uh, a leg up into, into the new area of drug development, et cetera. Okay. okay. So w when you started out, did you have like this goal to be like a famous scientist? a famous pioneering woman scientist? Like, were you able to pre-plan that? Or how did it sort of happen? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, things just happened. I mean, I, I, I was, when I went to college, I thought I was going to be a uh, te lab technician. And I had a wonderful uh, instructor who encouraged me to go to graduate school. And then I went to graduate school and I got very interested in genetics. And then I went to Cold Spring Harbor, and I was in this phage group. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And then I got this nice um, offer to join this new institution. So it just, I just took advantage of so opportunities. So your passion dr drove oh. you to ultimately was success. You, you didn't pre-plan this. Never. You followed your passion. And I mean, that's something I tell students all the time. And, Absolutely. And, and from that, success often follows. Absolutely. You, you have, to, you have to do what gives you joy. Absolutely. That's an important thing. And we want to hear more about some of the science that has given you a lot of joy. After these brief underwriting announcements, you're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. We are in the studio today talking about retroviruses with Dr. Ann Selka. 
And we're going to try to get Dr. Jonathan Yavalo to chime in today. He's so fascinated with Anne's story. It is fascinating. It, it is a fascinating thing. And so we were hearing in the previous segment, Anne was telling us a little bit about her background and how her enthusiasm for what, you know, viruses do sort of sort of laid the foundation for your career. Right. And so um, I want to start off this next segment and like ask you, why should people care about what viruses do? Well, viruses, of course, are very important. They are, uh, in terms of mass, they are the, the most um, uh, copious uh, material in the universe. And you used the word material. It's interesting. Mass. Uh, so, ma ma so I'll ask you this. Are viruses alive? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. I call them biological entities uh -huh. because um, I met some people think they um, they're alive once they get into a cell, but um, I don't think they have the components of a living thing. But they do have genetic material. They have genetic material. Which, which that's is, for sure. Which is part of the things that fascinated you. That's that's right. Swapping, you're an expert in swapping genetic material. Correct. You joke about. And yes. so so that, I sorry for cutting you off. But then why should the general person care about how viruses work? And what well, viruses cause disease. Mm -hmm. Viruses do good things too. Mm -hmm. Um, viruses are important in the marine environment, for example. There are huge numbers of viruses, and their, uh, their breakdown of bacteria in the marine environment is responsible for leave, uh, releasing material into the environment. So uh, if you didn't have uh, viruses in, in the marine environment, we'd be really up the creek in terms of our atmosphere and in terms of our oxygen, mm -hmm. and in terms of other materials that we need. So that's one thing. Um, as I said, they also cause disease. Mm -hmm. They cause disease in animals, animals we care about. They mm -hmm. cause diseases in plants uh, that are important economically, and they in human beings. So understanding the basic science of how viruses work tells us a little bit about the world around us. Correct. Right? And about how we work. As animals. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a really important thing. And so in your progression for being in, just interested in how they work um, in your long career, what are some of the things that surprised you the most that you learned by doing this? Well, um, the thing that has st struck me the most is that by simply trying to understand the very unique properties of retroviruses, we've learned so much not only about disease, in humans and animals, but also about the very origin of life on Earth. That's a big statement. And and its evolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, th that extraordinary insight is what really prompted me to write a book about it, mm -hmm. because I thought it was so amazing that just studying these viruses has, has given us so much knowledge. Well, is it fair to say that some of the things that you described how viruses work are some of the fundamental things that have allowed sort of the evolution of animals? Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. So you asked me about other things that surprised me. The other thing oh, that okay. surprised okay. everybody okay. was to find out when the first uh, human uh, genome was sequenced mm -hmm. was that 8% of our genome comprises retroviral sequences from ancient integrations that occurred through evolution. 8%, which is uh, That's a big number. four times more than the information required to make all of the proteins in our body. Furthermore, 
40 uh, percent of our DNA is made up of other kinds of sequences like retroviruses. I think of them as cousins okay. that are transposable elements. Now we have an another 50 percent that people think of as dark matter. <laughs> Nobody knows what that does, but some scientists have suggested that that, too, comprises other transposable elements that haven't been identified yet. So we're just a bag of transposable elements and retroviruses. Mm -hmm. I, I remember, uh, so in the book that uh, Anne wrote called Discovering Retroviruses, which she says is sort of written for her children and grandchildren so they can sort of appreciate her joy of this subject, um, she recounts a story where somebody finds that the genes in retroviruses are also in people. So you have a gene that's in a virus doing its bit, and then they ran an experiment and they said somehow the same genes are also present in everybody's DNA. You know, Dick Jane Spot, Puff, everybody's DNA has these retroviruses in it. Quite fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but they're important. They do things in okay. our DNA. So um, sometimes... Um, the, the DNA of the retrovirus has a control elements at either end to control the synthesis of the, the viral uh, oh, protein. When you say it at either end, either yes. end of what? Of the, so this piece that's inserted, the, the genome of, the, of mm -hmm. the, the DNA copy of the RNA of the retrovirus that's inserted mm -hmm. has controlling elements at the end. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's a recombination between the two ends so that you have only the controlling elements. But those controlling elements have been put to work in evolution. So some of them actually control our own genes mm -hmm. to regulate the expression of proteins. Um, one such protein is uh, beta amylase, which it has, mm -hmm. been, has been co-opted uh, to be produced not only in pancreas, but in our salivary yes, gland. Yes, we, we, do, we do have that there. Right? And that's the reason that we were able to go from hunter-gatherers to farmers, and that is controlled by a retroviral element. That's very interesting. So our ability to start digestion in your mouth right. and not your stomach was, right. is actually a viral protein. Right, exactly. So they do very important things. Um, the other important thing Jonathan and I were discussing was uh, in uh, development of the, of the uh, human embryo and formation of placenta. So um, there is a protein from, that's made by retrovirus called envelope protein. And what it can do is can make cells fuse together. That's important because when the virus enters the cell, it has to fuse itself with the, viral mm -hmm. with the cell membrane to get in. Well, if one cell makes that protein and the other cell makes the receptor for that protein, those two cells will fuse together. So in formation of the placenta, which is critical in the formation of uh, placental mammals, mm -hmm. uh, you have what's called a barrier called by fused cells. And the protein that's made to fuse those cells is a retroviral protein. Absolutely amazing. The envelope protein. So our ability not to lay eggs to produce our young, but to produce them live, depends on a retroviral protein. So That's when right. we go to pray, Dr. Karp, we have to pray to the retrovirus. Pray, pray, pray <laughs> to the retrovirus. Now, I, now one of your projects that, that I remember reading about um, involved you um, working with 
uh, some computer, like big data people, to look uh, across a lot of different genomes of a lot of different animals. Yes. And what, what, what sort of came out of that in terms of viral proteins? Which paper was Oh, that? I remember you, well, sort of in a general discussion when you were working at the Institute for Advanced Studies. Ah, oh, yes, yes, the yes. Institute for Advanced Studies. Oh, that was fascinating. So I went to the Institute for Advanced Studies to learn how these computer people analyze all this data and what they, it's bioinformatics is something really fantastic mm -hmm. and uh, mysterious to me. Mm -hmm. As but, was molecular biology to many people years ago, by the way. Well, <laughs> I'm just pointing that out. <laughs> as, as it is to many of the bioinformatics people, I might okay. add. So the idea at the Institute was to put a virologist with a bioinformatics person and see what they could come up with. And so um, I spoke to my, my colleague there, Vladimir Belli, and I said, he said, well, let's look at all the viral proteins and see... Um, see whether uh, there are any proteins from viruses that are not retroviruses, RNA-containing viruses that are not retroviruses, in the DNA of uh, people mm -hmm. or other, other animals, animals had their or other animals, okay. all the genomes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we did. And he just, there were, at, I think, 40 different uh, uh, genomes that had been uh, completely sequenced at the time, and he just ran all the proteins against these, and the outcome was just fantastic. No, absolutely. <laughs> fantastic in what way? We have a few moments we before found, we We found that in, uh, I think, 18 different animal species, there was, uh, there was evidence of integration of genes from RNA viruses, um, bornaviruses, and uh, filoviruses like um, Ebola virus. Mm -hmm in the genome of these various species, the various species. That has become species. normal for those animals. Become so the things normal that, in yeah. their, yes. So the things that you've been talking about, that integration Correct. is not unique to people. Correct. It's across all these all different, the, all animals. Absolutely, that absolutely. And that, that's fascinating. Yes, it was not only normal, but some of them were actually uh, conserved through evolution from for 40 years, for 40 million years. And we suspected at the time that they must have some useful function to be have conserved uh, uh, all that a time. Great, right? A great place for me to stop you for a moment. Okay. We'll be right back <laughs> with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 thebronxcom from healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077TheBronx.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio today with Dr. Ann Skalka, and we are talking about retroviruses and, in a sense, the integration of retroviral genetic material into the genomes of humans and, and other animals. Um, and so, in a sense, Dr. Skalka isn't what we said before—an expert in the swapping of genetic material. And I say that with a smile on my face because it, it is sort of cool. And we've we've hinted on that retroviral genetic material has a role in normal human health. Correct. And you mentioned mentioned the placenta yes. and the, the yes. breaking down of some carbohydrates. Right. But it's like retroviral genetic material can also be involved with 
diseases yes. and cancer. Can you say okay. a little bit about that for our audience? Oh, yes. So, so retroviruses actually caught the attention of uh, scientists early on because they did cause uh, cancer in various animal species. Mm. And um, it was just fascinating to try to understand at the time how this would be accomplished. And there were two kinds of retroviruses. One that uh, retroviruses that cause cancer immediately uh, in any species that they infected. And there was another kind which uh, they, would, they would cause cancer, but only after a long latent period. Mm. And so there was these two kinds. And for a long time, people didn't understand what was going on until finally it was discovered that retroviruses not only have the ability to integrate into genome, but also to pick up some cellular genes. And it turned out the ones that— So they can receive as well as give. They can receive as well as give. Okay, yes. okay. So they can pick up some cellular genes okay. that are, happen to be lying next to them, for example. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the ones that turned out to be uh, able to, to cause cancer very quickly were the ones that actually had picked up genes from uh, their or organism that they infected. And these genes were cancer genes. They were able to cause cancer. So those would, those would be genes that are either involved with turning on the cell cycle or turning That's off the exactly cell cycle, right. things like that. They're genes that are important in the growth of the cell and, and for accelerating the growth of the, the cell. Oncogenes, tumor suppressor genes. Oncogenes, those, right. Those so oncogenes. Yeah. Well, other, other genes, mm. tumor suppressor genes, were mm. also picked up. Mm -hmm. And they work by turning off the normal uh, cellular uh, mechanisms that prevent cell cycling. Mm -hmm. so, so both kinds could be picked up by retroviruses. So that was fascinating, and it started a whole new um, industry mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in science called the study of oncogenes. Mm -hmm. And now um, we know that the, a lot of those oncogenes are very important, and uh, people who have cancer— nowadays are usually checked to see whether their cancer is contains um, activated oncogenes of, mm -hmm. of the same type that were activated by picking up by these retroviruses, from picking up by these retroviruses. So, so let me just see if I completely understand. Good. You're saying that um, the whole field where oncogenes has, all, has almost become a word out of the, out of the PBS news hour, yes. where people are using the word oncogenes. Mm -hmm. And you're saying this discipline called understanding viruses and understanding retroviruses was really the tool that was used to discover them in the first place. Absolutely. Isn't that great? That's pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But then I told you about these other kind that don't transform cells or they don't cause cancer except for a long, mm -hmm. long time. Well, these are, the, this, these, uh, are another kind. So when a retrovirus integrates itself into the cell DNA— it can go a lot of places. And sometimes the, the place is innocuous. But other times, it's not so innocuous. If it integrates next to an oncogene, for example, it can turn that oncogene yeah, on yes. from its control elements. And so these, that take a long, long time, it's just they take a long, long time because it's a matter of, of uh, statistics, whether uh, eventually one of them will integrate into a bad spot. So it's a probability It's function. a probability. As a teacher of biostatistics, it's a probability. I'm also thinking about when you talk about things like that can lay dormant for a while and then yes. 
you know, intermittently be activated. I'm thinking about the families of the herpes viruses, yes, right? Yes. That, that can get into normal cells and yes. sometimes lay dormant for yes. long periods of time. Yes. And then they can become activated and cause, yes. not necessarily cancer, yes. but, but can cause, in a sense, disease yes. for people. Yes. And it's sort of, is that basically the same sort of thing we're talking about? No. It, no? <laughs> no. no. Uh, well, that could happen too. I mean, it could be, it could go into a place where it's innocuous for a while until something happens that uh, causes it to turn on. For example, if uh, there's too much space between it and an oncogene, it may wait until there's a deletion between them. And then... Then that juxtaposes the controlling element next to the oncogene, and mm -hmm. then you have cancer. So it could be, it could wait until right. that, have to wait until that kind of thing okay. happened, for example. So that could happen, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really good. So again, coming back to something that you talked about, people, you said people ask you the question, are viruses good or bad? Yes. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you again, you touched on it, but some of the things that you've described, they can be both Good and, and bad. bad. Depends what you're looking so, at. Yes. Yeah, so, so let me get back then to this this bioinformatics study that I did when oh, I was okay. at the okay. institute. So that was that. I'm, was, I'm sorry, I triggered a memory. <laughs> <laughs> that study was not of uh, retroviruses; it was other viruses. Oh, other, right? Okay. So it was other viruses. What? Uh, but both of the ones that we found that were integrated uh, into these various species. Mm -hmm. um, were very highly path pathogenic viruses. Uh, born a virus uh, can, can kill uh, the cell, the animal that it affects. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, uh, Ebola virus, virus we know virus, is yeah. pretty mm -hmm. fatal, right? Yeah, that makes it so, to like... So uh, those are pretty them. bad viruses. So we, we wondered why on earth were these genes from these horrible viruses kept in these cells? And and they, they were genes, for example, um, that pertain to some of the structural parts of the of the virus, uh, like it's uh, it's out of shell or it's mm. nuclear capsid. So, mm. so we wondered why are these genes conserved, and we speculate and we noticed that um, the the animal species that had Bornavirus genes in them were not susceptible to the virus, whereas so it, it, those it, it offered protection. Yeah, well, so that was our idea. Okay. We said, oh, well, maybe somehow. The expression of this gene would offer some protection, right? Mm -mm. And so that was what we had suggested at the time. Well, you know, um, a Japanese group who also studied bornaviruses, mm -hmm. and they have been studying them for years, really, mm -hmm. decided to test this idea. And they found that there is a, uh, a bornavirus a gene in, a, in squirrels that, um, that can actually protect cells from infection with bornavirus mm. that is now in circulation. So, um, yes, they are like, it's like a genetic immunization against these horrible viruses. <laughs> That's exactly the words that I was thinking about. It sounds right. like an immunization therapy. Yes. And it's a perfect example about how this, this viral genetic material can be good yes. and it can be bad. Yes, so, this, so, so these are not retroviruses, but they are really, so it, I mean, it's the general theme, right? Mm -hmm. You know, viruses as a way of um, carrying genes in and out of cells is also very fascinating. Oh, yeah. And that can underscore the role, and maybe this will be good for the last segment, of how retroviruses might be central to successful gene therapy.
in the not too distant well, I, I future. I think that's how when people talk about gene therapy, they use viruses to deliver, Absolutely. you know, corrected genetic material. Absolutely, um, and, yeah. and the best one for that purpose is this horrible HIV, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I think you know, if you thought about it, might sound awful, but. It really is very good at what it does, and mm-hmm. if you just take away all the bad parts, it's a wonderful yeah. And identifying them as thing was it the CCR five receptor is like one of the things that yeah. allows it to and stuff like that. It's um yeah, it's fascinating. It seems like the things you're talking about are like things related to a lot of aspects of like modern science. It, it, it kind of sounds like science fiction, Doctor Carp. That basically what we're saying is we can take a pathogenic virus. And trans and convert it into a viral an entity that could potentially cure a disease rather than cause the disease. But I'll put I'll put words in in Anne's mouth and saying that's what I've been studying my entire career is how viruses do this and sometimes it, that mechanism can be used for the to benefit human health. Right. right. Did, did I capture something? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a great place. Um, so we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. We are talking about retroviruses and all things retroviruses with Dr. Ann Skalka, one of the pioneering researchers in the field of retroviral biology. And um, how is it that these things, they're called retroviruses, tell us something about the origin of life? Okay, so... um for a long time, uh, people have speculated on how life originated in, on Earth. And uh, it's, it's stu- still a mystery because uh, we can't really go back and, and repeat the conditions that were there. Uh, but there, there is a thought that um, uh, the earliest con- time kind of a genetic material was probably not DNA, but RNA. So RNA is a molecule like DNA uh, the only the only difference is has instead of uh, deoxyribose as the sugar, it has ribose as a sugar. So it's only a difference of an oxygen atom in it. And um, but uh, it's very very uh, interesting because it can bend in various ways and it can actually act not only as genetic material but as an enzyme. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that the an early Earth RNA was the genetic material. And, um, uh, but my understanding is the very non-stable genetic Yes, that, that's the other, that's the other problem. Yeah. So you can ask, well, what, if RNA is okay, why do we have DNA, right? right? Exactly. Well, the answer is, uh, uh, there are a lot of different answers, but one answer is uh, DNA is much more stable than RNA, a hundred times more. That different, that single difference in the sugar makes all the difference in the world. So if you want to make long strings uh, of, of um, information, then the best thing to use is DNA because if you get too long with RNA, you're going to break apart. Mm-hmm. So you can't put very much information in RNA. And that's really why um, there are still RNA genomes, but only in viruses on Earth. And we just we just said they aren't living, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, so you qualify that. <laughs> anyway, 
So, but well, all of them have pretty small genomes because you can't make a very large genome uh, that's stable. And also, um, the other thing that makes DNA more stable is that uh, it comes in duplexes. So you have complementary helix, helix, right? Mm -hmm. So we have a double helix. And so if there's a break in one strand, you can repair it by copying off the other strand. So those two things make DNA much much more stable. But in early times. Um, it was RNA that was actually the genome before cells maybe uh, came about, mm -hmm. or even even in the earliest cells may have may have had right, we RNA genomes. The, the purpose of a cell is to protect the yes. genetic material. Correct. So yeah. you had you had the genetic material, and somehow you had a membrane that formed around it, and so people don't really know how that was accomplished. But there there is a general consensus that RNA was the first the right. first genetic material. So then you ask, well. Well, how did RNA get to DNA? I mean, what? How did that transition occur? And then you have retroviruses. They have an enzyme that actually does that, right? Mm -hmm. So it makes DNA from RNA. It uses that template mm -hmm. and nucleate, deoxynucleotides to make DNA. So we have to assume that somehow some sort of retroviral gene or retrotransposon in early Earth was responsible for helping uh, DNA to be made in most genetic, most living organisms, right? And we know that retroviruses themselves are very old. Oh. So the oldest one uh, now that we know about uh, were, were present in um, uh, organisms that were restricted to the sea in, in about 550 million years ago. Oh. So, so we know that they had retroviruses. Uh, so it probably retroviruses occurred before then, mm -hmm. but there's a huge gap between when um, when life first formed on Earth, like 300 and a half billion years ago, mm -hmm. to 550 million years. We have no idea what, what went on there, but we can assume that retroviruses or something like it had something to do with that transition. Yeah, that is fascinating. It is. It's pretty cool. Well, you, what you made me think about too is. Um, as, as global warming, as global climate change happens, and things that have been frozen oh. for millions of years now yes. become thawed, yes. is there a risk that some of these oh. retroviruses oh. from eons ago might be freed? Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> sure, sure. So I think some some uh, French French scientists have just uh, drilled down in Siberian ice and found some viruses that are down there. They are now ex extinct. On extinct. The, on the, they're extinct, right? But they they found that they could revive them wow. from this from this permafrost <laughs> in Siberia. So yeah, no, that that's that, that's, that's a possible. potential. They're risk. not retroviruses, but I wouldn't good be surprised. And, good and bad. Well, let, let me let me ask you. Then. So you've been studying you know viruses and vet retroviruses your your entire career. There's an ethics involved with this about changing the genetic material of organisms. Have you seen yes. throughout the years how people have, you know, now there's a fear of cloning. Yes. But there, I'm assuming early on there was a fear of swapping genetic material, manipulating it, right. creating, you know, mutants, not just right. bacteria and viruses, right. but mutant animals. Right, with human ignorance. <laughs> with human ignorance because nature has been doing it for years and years. Okay. So viruses, transposable elements go across species, even across... Um, Phyla uh, uh, throughout evolution. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this is how uh, things evolve. Mm -hmm. So um, it was kind of, um, I think, 
hubris, human hubris that said, oh, we're doing something totally new. It isn't totally new. Um, but of course, we have to be uh, thoughtful about what and we careful do. careful about, yeah. about doing it. And I'm reminded, too, just because of where we are in time, um, you know, the, the astronauts that came back from the moon sat for three weeks <laughs> in a you know, a Winnebago kind of thing. Like a quarantine. A quarantine, because people were afraid of viruses and things that they might have brought back from, yes. from the moon. From the moon, that right. That we were not prepared for. Right. And we're doing the same thing with the permafrost. Yes. Sort of now. But I, uh, what I was getting at, too, is, you know, part of human hubris is the fear of doing this. Yes, And you, exactly. like I said, there's a lot of science fiction movies, science yes. fiction books. Yes. Is, is that something you have to deal with all the time? Uh, yes, I, it, it is a fear, but I think, you know, people get more and more comfortable with the idea as time goes by. Um, for example, there have been ideas that you could actually um, regenerate mammoths by uh, getting mammoth DNA mm -hmm. and putting them into elephants and regenerate a mammoth. I mean, or even species that are going extinct. You could bring them mm -hmm. back by doing genetic manipulation with with DNA. So there are all kinds of ideas going around there. Um, of course, now uh, with uh, CRISPR, you have mm -hmm. a lot of controversy about how much you can manipulate, how much manipulation of human DNA. Yeah, what you can change in the, the right. big issue exactly. about CRISPR babies. Exactly, like exactly. Yeah, but that, that's something that you've been dealing with your right. entire career, and you're yes. not afraid. Uh, you think humans have the ability to self-regulate that and uh, not let bad stuff happen? I think so. Yes, I that's, think so. It's very positive. I am positive, I, I, yes. That's, that's <laughs> actually sort of cool. Um, and I want to ask you, too, before the program ends, um, I'll just put this right out there. What is it like to be a famous woman <laughs> in science? And I have she no has idea. the whole her chauffeur and her, no, all the bodyguards. And as you're laughing, I'll, I'll put it up this way. If you were a famous movie actress, yes. right, it, you, you, it would be difficult for you to go shopping or go to the, you know, yes. have a normal life and walk yes. around. Yes. Right. But you've accomplished a lot in the world of science. But you could go to the movie theater, you walk around and nobody knows who you are. Yet you've accomplished and been involved with all these things that have really pushed the envelope of what science is and the kind of science is that's done. Yes. But in a sense, it's 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 in the, in the, the island of nerds. Exactly right. But I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, as you reflect upon that, I mean, like, like, do you have thoughts about that? No, I, I've never, I've never, I've never entered the field to become famous. Oh, okay. So, so, <laughs> so it, it, I don't even think about it. So it's like one of those things, if you really are accomplished, other people tell you it. But yes. if you're really not, you go around telling other people. Well, that, that is correct. Sometimes. That is correct. Some, I, I have seen her at conferences with the top people very, from Stanford, UCSF and the like say, oh, Anne, it's so great to see you. I mean, at Cold Spring Harbor, her book sells out after they buy 50 or more copies yeah. at, the, at the retrovirus and meeting so I, I at really, Cold Spring I really Harbor. And, and Jim Watson, she says, well, Watson's a little dropped from, uh, dropped from uh, his reputation, but he, Anne says, oh, come on over, talk to Jim Watson. So the level, her, she's the real deal. Yeah, she is the real deal. And I, I really Thanks. appreciate having you on the show today and sharing your knowledge, sharing your enthusiasm for science and, and your sense of... It's been, it's been a pleasure. I hope yeah. I turned some students on. Absolutely. And if our, our listeners want to hear more, um, uh, Anna Marie Salka, which is the, the name of the, uh, the full name on the book that she has written called Discovering Retroviruses, Beacons in the Biosphere. Harvard it, University Press. Harvard, Harvard University Press. 
Um, it's available. Oh, yes, from, from Harvard University or Amazon, and it's not terribly expensive. I think it's under $25. Yeah, excellent. And, and it looks like a fascinating read. It's you got nice website. pictures in it, and it's written for, for students and uh, people who are just interested in science. Um, and uh, I hope they enjoy it. Thank you so much. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public Health Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Ryder University Health Studies Institute's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program has helped inform you about our retroviruses and evolution and disease and normal human functioning as well as evolution. Um, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Ann Skalko. Thank you so much again, and um, it's wonderful meeting you. If you have any questions or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Ryder University, please email us at hsi at rider.edu. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Ryder University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under Academics and Academics programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.